This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You never know how the work that you're doing in the context of building organization is going to like multiply and bear fruit later, years down the line. And even if it's not the same organizational home, that's okay. You want to build a strong foundation, a strong organization, but you also have to be okay with the flow of history and the flow of movement. And sometimes things don't pan out the way that you want them to, but that's okay because you're still doing the work and it's still going to like show up uh, in ways you won't even expect. Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. What has living through these last several decades of increasing political and economic turmoil taught us about the relations of power here in the United States and worldwide? And in what directions do these lessons take us? as we design strategies to build power from below to win basic rights, securities, and justice. In this episode, I'm joined by Sean Estelle, an organizer of over a dozen years who has recently held leadership roles in both National and Chicago DSA, and Akin Ola, who is a longtime organizer, National Press Secretary for the Dream Defenders, and a freelance writer for The Guardian and The Forge. I had so much fun in this conversation focusing on our shared experiences in the millennial student left during the era before Bernie, uh, the time of the Obama presidency. You'll hear how Akeem built a coalition of unlikely allies to win $100 million in funding for public education, and how Sean contributed to an international incident at their university, and a lot else besides that. My favorite thing about this interview was recalling the spirit of that era— This was a time when the left was objectively smaller, less organized, and I think skilled than it is now. But there was a huge feeling of possibility, thanks to the explosion of protest movements like Occupy and Black Lives Matter and a radical wing of the climate movement. At the time, lots of people were describing this as the biggest social movement wave since the 1960s. And many of us participants thought that we could actually fulfill the unfinished tasks of these prior movements. And maybe we still can. But it's clear that it's going to take a little bit longer than we thought back then. This conversation opens up some important themes, including the importance of student organizing and campus politics as an effective laboratory for learning how to organize, dealing with urgency in our organizing, especially amidst the climate crisis, and the pendulum movement of different organizing techniques, from slow and steady structure-based organizing to a move towards decentralized and networked mass protest movements into electoral organizing, and now, apparently, back again. So let's get into it. In this episode, we've got three middle-aged millennials recalling days gone by, our days in the youth and student movement of the 2010s, 
And so why don't you begin by telling me your uh, personal story about your kind of entry and then journey through the student and youth student power movement. Uh, Akeen in New Jersey, Sean first in California, but then both of you working with students and young people all over the country. So uh, let's start again with Sean, and then Akeen, you can follow up. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in California, mostly was a uh, student at the University of California, San Diego, and got politicized by the Occupy movement in 2011 when I was a junior. Uh, there had been a sort of crest of student organizing two years prior at the University of California when there was a big 32% tuition hike my freshman year. And then again, my junior year, uh, the Board of Regents was putting forward an 81% tuition hike. And the Occupy movement was happening all over the country. And we had a lot of folks who had already been absorbed into organization, into long-term struggles. You know, there's a very long tradition of campus-based organizing at UC San Diego going all the way back to Angela Davis. And so uh, my first campaign and organization uh, was basically working to uh, do an extended direct action campaign to take over a library that had been shut down uh, due to budget cuts. And so in the course of about seven months, I was exposed to long-term direct action organizing, passing student-based, um, uh, student government-based resolutions on BDS, running a campaign to stop a Division I sports referendum that would have raised student fees, shutting down a state capitol, a bunch of other things that all was in a whirlwind uh, maelstrom of student organizing work. And that was my first exposure. And from there, spent many years building statewide uh, student unions uh, and student power networks. And then once I moved to Chicago in 2014, doing the same with folks in the Midwest, and then later helping build the youth climate movement um, alongside Will uh, and many others uh, too. So that was sort of my entry point and it's been a whirlwind ever since. Uh, I started organizing technically at Rutgers University around 2008. Um, I wasn't really organizing. I was kind of volunteering for protests that were happening, uh, particularly for Tent State University, which was a week-long kind of like festival slash outdoor occupation at Rutgers. So I eventually got kicked out of Rutgers, like many good students do, um, for throwing a lot of parties. And one of my friends was basically like, you should do 10 State at Rowan. Um, so after I got kicked out, I went to Rowan, uh, but I ended up getting involved with drug policy on campus, um, which started with a coalition. It was basically an alliance between a bunch of stoners and drug dealers and um, like this one sorority on campus. Uh, and That's the basis for a power coalition. It was great. I mean, the campus loved us. Uh, we were definitely like well connected across campus as an organization, but we did not win uh, much or win most of our like anything that we were fighting for. Um, so we tried to reform the organization, and the most we could come up with at the, that time was to create like some sort of shadow organization to threaten the administration from like secret. And eventually we we're like, okay, this doesn't actually make sense. Uh, we we're going to basically just create like a secret communist 
cult cadre thing to terrify people. And then we realized it was actually much better to just be openly uh, left-wing. Um, so we created what was called, what we call the student union, barring a little bit from Rutgers, um, and just united different organizations on campus. It's around shared frustrations, everything from not wanting to do services or like community service for campus, uh, which seems a little goofy, but uh, people just didn't want to do them. Um, to things like tuition freezes and creating like uh, multicultural centers on campus. So basically that student union formation um, allowed us to create a coalition that also allowed us to build uh, bases of students around, like within random organizations, basically, kind of like doing a structure-based organizing. Instead of churches, we were organizing clubs, basically, um, and getting mm -hmm. their members involved through that process. And this was all connected to what was happening across the country at the time, which is basically just the question of what does student government look like if it was actually for students and if it actually functioned as like a fighting organization uh, instead of something that was like a rubber stamp for administrators. Um, so the ours was just uh, an attempt to look at our local structure, a student government that was made up of different clubs and trying to essentially... Um, create our own student government outside of that. And then we even created like our own declaration of independence from the administration, from the student government, and got all these different student organizations to sign it. And I've, I've heard you reflect that the common denominator, because the common denominator was power and should students have it to define the conditions of their own education and the decisions of the university, that helped for being able to unite a large array of different student groups that you're naming. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, focusing on not, I mean, we definitely focused on issues too, but really hammering in for students through one-on-ones and also through like pitching entire organizations at once on this idea that if they had the power to actually run the campus themselves, they wouldn't have to constantly position the administration. They could actually, uh, you know, do it themselves. And that was fundamental to all of our organizing and how we were set up as an organization, um, seeking power um, and trying to build it. And that's why we built like a statewide student association, because anyone that's at a public university knows likely that the actual power lies with some higher body uh, than your president, most likely a board of trustees or a board of uh, governors. And thus you need some sort of ability to organize students on multiple campuses at once to actually access that. And then so on and so forth with joining the United States Student Association with having the ability to actually organize students on a national level um, and then wage campaigns there that can actually win things that you couldn't possibly win on one campus at once. Can I ask you a question, Akeen? I don't know if I ever asked you this, but uh, did you all run people for student government like while you were also building on the outside? Did you run people on the inside too? Yeah, we ran people pretty much at every campus, at least in New Jersey, uh, for student government at some point with the aim of taking over the student governments or at worst having one or two people who are able to... Um, like, yeah, just make things, um, yeah, pass legislation, also make shady things happen behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Perfectly Tribunes for the organization. Uh, <laughs> Some would say, yes. So I, I was also involved in this era coming from the climate angle, and I was involved in the student divestment campaigning, and then we started to come to conferences and things and meet the two of you, met a lot of other people along the way. But if I remember one thing from this era, it's like sleeping on the floor. We spent a lot of time sleeping on the floor in church basements or dorm rooms or uh, on the concrete at Occupy Wall Street. And so I wanted to ask, was this true for you as well? 
And I'm curious if any certain uh, accommodations stand out from various uh, events or demonstrations or conferences during this era. Yeah, well, I'll just jump in and say the story that I told as my introduction in terms of the extended library direct action campaign. It would it took place, the closed down library was in the theater building where I was spending a lot of time because I was a theater major in school. And so when we did our initial week-long occupation, I literally brought my mattress from my home and just like put it in the library because uh, I brought it also for like a prop for a theater final. And then I just like moved it over to the library and then we were there for like six months. So like that was one. And the other one that comes to mind when you say that is the first year that I was in Chicago and that I was building a student power network in Iowa I worked the electoral, the fall electoral cycle, and I spent like eight weeks living for free in the attic of a Catholic worker house in Des Moines, uh, trying to do electoral mobilization and then having the anarchists make fun of me every morning, but also Ooh. like passing out stickers and feeding me every day. Uh, so I love it. Th- that's what comes to mind. Okay, yeah, the benefit any? of being in student government is that we got hotel rooms. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, that's why wow. we took over institutions. But I mean, we spoke, it was like 10 <laughs> people per hotel room. Uh, so, but, least, uh, I guess yeah. that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, I wonder about a, a few specific instances where you were deepening in your political analysis. And it, maybe you started and you already had it all figured out. But for me, I definitely entered as like a, a you know, a, a, a youthful and angry, but like also sort of like liberal environmentalist who was kind of worried about climate change. And then I met people who were really concerned with poverty, economic justice, worker rights, racial justice, and all of the interconnections sort of became revealed through through meeting people and also sort of meeting other students who were struggling on those other issues. But I, I'm, I'm curious if you have any memories about uh, that aspect of your own development. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to talk a lot about student government, <laughs> which might frustrate people. I just think it's so important and has been lost in the last decade in terms of the power of student government and its potential. Um, and as an anecdote, uh, I ran into Steve Max a couple years ago, who was one of, I think, the first organizer ever hired by Students for Democratic Society in the 1960s. Um, and he, he made some comment how, like, it's weird now that there's student government kids and student activists, like, the, in the student left. Uh, while in his day there was no difference, the student government kids and the student organizers were the same people often. But, yeah, so one of the moments I this all clicked was when we sent a student um, to Germany to receive weapon, uh, special weapons training using student government money. Um, unfortunately, it was like a, it was a right-wing student who wanted to increase their likelihood of um, gaining rank in the what? military as an ROTC <laughs> student. But it was the moment where I'm like, oh, we can just kind of do anything with this money, can't we? Um, in a way that I think, yeah, we just, I haven't had... Like those kind of bounds aren't about, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex doesn't really give you as much freedom um, as I would argue having a radical student government could. Uh, assuming uh, I regret to inform you that we've they, they didn't approve the special weapons training in the at the, at the board. <laughs> <laughs> no, but keep 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 going yeah. though. I, I I joke, but but the point is well taken. I mean, I'm curious about yeah. if there's uh, any examples you have of how. Um, 
you you put that to use um, kind of more for for progressive cause. Yeah, I mean, the entire existence of New Jersey United Students comes out of the Rutgers Student Union taking over their student government, uh, I believe, around like 2010. Uh, and they did that by building a large coalition um, with multicultural organizations on campus to take over a relatively, you know, uh, powerless student government given uh, those at Rowan and Montclair that are fully independent from the universities and have over a million dollar annual budget. But it was enough money and enough um, also credibility where they were able to bring together student radicals and student government kids from across the state and hammer together a student union that was then able to, I mean, at the, I mean, by the end of it, raise, I mean, I believe over $100 million for public education in New Jersey, passed the New Jersey Dream Act. Did you say $100 um, million? Dollars? Yeah, I mean, it was through a bond referendum. That's hugely significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, there are substantial victories that were, you know, won through that, but also just the reality that we're able to suddenly organize students at nine different campuses simultaneously in a way that we just weren't able to uh, before we had those resources. But yeah, so I definitely, I think those are the best examples in terms of being able to like multiply what otherwise would be disparate, separate organizing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the example that I will give, because I totally agree with Akeen in terms of um, like the financial power that's possible there and why people should not lose sight of like that as, as a, a potential place of struggle. Like, you know, thinking about the, the conference in Quebec um, that we organized with the Montreal uh, student unionists and we got a bunch of students to like pay for scholarships to go to this militant thing in Quebec with a student union who like had helped bring down their government. <laughs> and like that was sort of one of the peaks for me. But the the other example that I think to get back um, to the I think part of the other uh, other part of your question, Will, around like my own political development and the political development of people around me in the context of student organizing. So, you know, I was very involved with uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, and we were able to pass a resolution uh, calling for uh, divestment um, from the Israeli apartheid state uh, my senior year when I was in student government, and that was like the fourth year of the campaign. And uh, that was just it's huge influence on my political development and the the issues that I like have uh, spent a lot of time on. And it just became so clear to me in the context of waging that campaign what the stakes were because you know I ended up um, going on a trip to Israel that was like an American Jewish Committee funded trip that was paying for student leaders to go, and we had had people from SJP like three or four years in a row at our campus, basically do hand-picked recommendations um, to essentially like smuggle like left-wingers onto these trips so that we would be able to inoculate people against like, you know, folks who would stand up and say, well, you've never been there, so you don't know what's going on. So me and a friend went at the recommendation. Uh, we were able to like visit with uh, Palestinians who were former UCSD students, while we were there, you know, years later, this trip, uh, the specifically the student government trip got called out um, by BDS-based organizations and because there were, like, right-wing student government people uh, that were going on it. But 
we all went on this trip. It was life-changing, whatever. And then we got back and we started waging this campaign for a resolution. And somebody showed a video about harassment of Ethiopian Jews uh, in Israel. And the next week, the uh, ambassador to uh, Israel from Ethiopia was flown out to speak in front of our student government. Like, that is what the stakes of the power struggle were. And it showed because when we won that resolution, there were immediate shockwaves. Like, it was one of the bigger resolutions that got passed because there were three or four resolutions at the University of California that came very quickly after that. And it was sort of a high point for BDS organizing in 23, 2013, 2014. And so, yeah, it was hugely influential in terms of seeing, like, the stakes of what we were actually doing. That was always really f- something about student organizing that is was impressive even at the time, is, like, it's such a, a university is so small, and student organizing in some ways is so simple and so straightforward compared to organizing out in the wide world. But if you build power and make ambitious demands of a university, it really can become a platform to come into solidarity with all kinds of other struggles that might be happening off campus. And just like the position of universities in our society and the ability to drive education around an issue with these with student led campaigns like, is just undeniable. I want to ask a little bit about what lessons about organizing were you learning in this era when it comes to the sort of mechanics of how you get people motivated and build teams and recruit volunteers and just all of the nuts and bolts. I mean, I was totally new to all of this when I was a student and, and, and the two of you were too. So what were some of the core lessons about organizing you're still taking with you? Yeah, I think, Everything I learned about power, I learned about during student organizing, um, and that I've done a good job at forgetting different ways. Partially because it's embarrassing to even say that out loud. Like I learned something from student organizing. Um, I think it's something that's often it's besmirched to most student organizers. I've as I've tried to like read the books of people like Jane McAlevey. Like I'm like they don't talk about their student organizing that much, uh, despite it playing what I imagine is an outsized role in their development. But yeah, I feel like I learned a lot about power and connecting it to an institution. So again, student government. But like, there's just such a difference between organized, like building a community organization, you know, having protests for weeks, months, years, and having you know members die, leave, whatever, and then having all that work just disappear, essentially. Like, either a lot of organizing, it's like you either elected somebody at the end or you didn't, and that's, you know, the end-all, be-all of a lot of your organizing. And I feel like with labor and with student organizing, you do have this opportunity to actually build up an institution that is more of a permanent fixture that allows you to constantly wield power, wield resources, to constantly activate a fixed group of people who are somewhat, you know, you know, trapped at their job or in their at their campus or whatever. And I just I've been thinking about that a lot, uh, especially as more people move towards base building. Um, like, this pretty much every organization I've seen and every foundation that wants to fund organizations is talking about we need to build bases. And I'm just like, damn, they don't know how hard that is, do they? Um, and like having an institution that is clear and as discreet as a student government gives you the ability to like actually wield 
like a much more like a fixed form of power um, over an institution. This is really interesting because I think people would say that the transience of student organizing is one of its downsides because the students always grow up and graduate out of the organization. But you're saying even so, the, uh, you, can, you can build uh, stable organizations through multiple generations of students. It is possible and we ought to be doing it more than, uh, more than we are. I think I think yeah. maybe like the synthesis of that because that's a maybe like the thesis and the antithesis of that and the the synthesis I think in some ways is like for me I agree that we want to be building sustainable long term organizations and that it is possible to do that with students uh, and I've seen it happen and at the same time it is easy for that to like fall away. I would argue it's easier for it to fall away in the context of the university than in the context of like broad-based mass working class organizations or labor unions or whatever, for the reasons that you're talking about, Will, in terms of the transience of students. But that to me is one of the lessons that actually I have been coming back to over the last few months uh, in the last year is I, I feel kind of at peace with turmoil in my political home and in seeing some of the turmoil of the political organizations that people have spent a long time building because I've been through the process of organizational turmoil and like seeing things fall away, but not necessarily seeing the the fruits of all of that work fall away. You're still doing leadership development. You're still teaching people campaign skills. You never know how the work that you're doing in the context of building organization is gonna like multiply and bear fruit later years down the line. And even if it's not the same organizational home, that's okay. Um, you wanna build a strong foundation, a strong organization, but you also have to be okay with the flow of history and the flow of movement. Uh, and sometimes things don't pan out the way that you want them to, but that's okay because you're still doing the work and it's still going to like show up uh, in ways you won't even expect. Akin, would you add anything to that? Yeah, in terms of student organizing uh, being temporary, I I feel like I it's been true historically and it's totally still true, but I think what's happened is society has changed around this where I feel like most people, and this, some of this is anecdotal, um, but like most people I know just aren't remaining in the same neighborhoods uh, in the, for as long as that the, like their parents did. Um, people are being pushed out of the neighborhoods through gentrification. Other people are just, um, I mean, yeah, are just like leaving for different reasons. Um, let alone workplace. I feel like I know people who stay at the workplace for um, like three years is a miracle uh, for most people. Um, and not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. But yeah, I feel like being on campus, I was there for five years because I'm a slow student. Um, I'm like five years at one place is such a long time now uh, for anybody. And definitely for me, historically, that five years was a much bigger chunk of my life and more stable than I you know, thought my life was you know, going to be for the rest of my life or whatever. But. Word, that's, yeah, that's a totally fair point uh, for sure. <clears throat> And while those organizations exist, like there is a real strong push towards leadership development that exists by necessity in student organizations because you do have to pass it off to the next class down the next year. You know, sometimes it's because like all the juniors are going to study abroad. And so it's really the sophomores who are the real leaders or it's like sophomores and seniors sometimes. And uh, but who knows, it's different at each each college, but there's these sort of really reliable rhythms to the academic year. And if you want to perpetuate the organization, you know what you have to do is you have to recruit freshmen and you have to like then 
train them up and then you have to get them prepared to, to, to hold real leadership roles. And that was always front and center uh, in, in our student organizing in a way that maybe you can get away with avoiding if you don't have the, the inevitable churn that is understood by everybody to be part of the work. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. So in this era, all three of us ended up um, being a part of trainings and events put on by an organization called Momentum, uh, which was established in 2014, and it was a training organization for organizers, attracted a lot of millennials who had had experience in Occupy, Black Lives Matter, and the climate and student power movements. All three of us had our own uh, version of the journey with momentum as participants. Uh, Akeen and I have been staff at various points, and we've all also been critics uh, uh, at various points, both within and, and without the, the momentum community. So uh, if you could just um, share for the listeners, what was momentum in its early days, like back in 2014, 2015, and what was um, really attractive about it at that time? Starting with the king. Yeah, if Occupy Wall Street was a fire that like gave me a sense of revolution, then momentum was a torch that kept that burning for years afterwards. Definitely had moments in which I was, you know, burnt out from organizing, from base building, from also watching, you know, mass movement work from Occupy collapse um, or torn apart by the state, depending on how you want to see it, uh, or both. It's momentum was a place where I could continue the question of like, why didn't this work from like Occupy? Why didn't this work from campus organizing? And like, what does it actually look like? How do we actually answer the question of uh, what is revolution in the United States? Uh, and so that was for me game changing and just kept me actually committed, stable, um, and able to really do this work with the knowledge that it was actually going somewhere meaningfully. Yeah, I think for me, as somebody who is always much further outside the core of Momentum uh, and uh, went to like a couple of trainings uh, and then was in conversation with a lot of people who were creating organizations um, and leading a lot of the work, I think that I saw Momentum as a place where people were starting to accumulate and learn some of the skills, the long-term, like, hard and soft skills of being an organizer, um, especially folks who were less aware of some of the other infrastructure that existed that had much harder on-ramps to get into because it had been around for a long time and there was not good like social media or other things. Momentum was like a really easy place 
for people to jump in and meet folks like mentors, meet people who knew about all this other infrastructure. So it was sort of like an introduction to the playbook um, as what I saw it as and was then a place where people could like explore further uh, based on whether they liked you know, mass protests and wanted to go to a Greenpeace direct action camp or like structure-based organizing and wanted to go to more towards uh, like, you know, movement society uh, stuff or whatever. Um, so. All right. Well, let's let's move forward just a little bit. Um, let's just ask one more question. You mentioned Quebec, Sean, mm-hmm. and you, you also said that it was uh, sort of a, a maelstrom of uh, organizing activity in 2011, 2012, 2013, around a whole host of issues, stuff you were doing in California as well as nationwide. And I guess I just wonder uh, how, how you would communicate to somebody who is a little younger uh, and, and wasn't yet kind of politically of age in these years, um, how it felt in those immediately post-Occupy years and just the kind of real kind of revolutionary energy that felt like it was in the air, even if things were also just like a total mess all the time. (laughs) So I think that like when I got politicized on campus at UCSD, it was by people who like some were involved in the local grad students union and were also uh, international socialist organization cadre Some were part of organizations that had been around, like the Black Student Union and Mecha, since, like, Angela Davis had founded the Student Affirmative Action Coalition 40 years prior or whatever. There was a real sense of being grounded in history. Um, And, you know, I was, like, handed books on, like, uh, you know, well, there was, like, Lenin, but then there was also, like, okay, this is, we're going to read the Port Huron Statement and talk about, like, SDS. Uh, And so there was a real sense of that. Uh, like we're part of a a historical tradition. And then hearing people talk about the Arab Spring, talking about uh, the things that had made Occupy kick off, like the Madison um, uprising. And then, yeah, the Maple Spring in Quebec, where this revolutionary student movement had worked with labor unions and had brought down a government. And so when I moved to Chicago in 2014, uh, you know, I had come out the previous summer to Madison for a national student power convergence and seen the occupation happening from the Dream Defenders, like in the Florida State Capitol. They weren't there in Madison because they were too busy. They had to like zoom in uh, because they were occupying the state capitol. And so when I moved to Chicago, I was willing to make huge sacrifices and like go on these crazy adventures where like I would have a Greyhound ticket and be hitchhiking at one in the morning to like get to the next campus or whatever. And I look back at that now and I just think about like, yeah, it is a feeling of sort of revolutionary fervor where you're like, what was I doing? What were the situations I was putting myself in for the cause of like organization for something bigger than myself? And then, yeah, going to Montreal, sleeping on a gym floor with hundreds of of trade unionists and, and student unionists, and then going straight down to Jackson for the 50th anniversary of the SNCC conference, the Freedom Summer Conference that happened. So that's how I would communicate it to people that are younger is like trying to think about very specific moments and that's usually what I will try and do with people it, when I'm like talking to them and doing leadership development now in the context of organization. And, you know, if I'm talking to like YDSA comrades about like their student organizing and connecting it to DSA or to labor unions or whatever, it's about like having very specific moments 
and then asking them what it feels like for them now and trying to get really specific about what they're doing now too and then drawing those things together and then using that as a springboard for being a part of this historical tradition of student organizing and of like building power to change the world. Yeah, it really did feel like a revolution might happen um, or at least that we were beginning to put the pieces of a revolution together. And so I feel like a lot of, yeah, just hearing Sean talk about their experience of like, yep, that makes sense. And like, that's, that's why we were A, so tired and B, that's why we, like, we were able to push through so much all the time. Because it, it just felt so urgent and so like relatively close. Um, uh, in some way, yeah, it's kind of weird to think that it did feel closer than, than it does now. Um, even though I feel like the conditions are probably more ripe for big things to happen in this exact moment than they were then. And yeah, I, I think we saw, um, at least in New Jersey, um, like a sense that the university could be a place that we could actually control and run within like three to five years, um, not only as students, but like working with labor to do it. We were talking like, big, uh, you know, plans on you know, what it would look like to help run the state of New Jersey to, like, merge all the campuses into, like, one super public university. Um, so, just, yeah, things just felt very possible, um, both in, like, this, like, big, like, we, um, yeah, we could overthrow the government any day now, <laughs> or about to at least um, to hold and take reins of a lot of powerful institutions, or our organizations are going to become, like, these new powerful uh, vehicles, uh, for like, you know, for a, a revolution that'll happen in like a couple of years or something like that. And it's so interesting because then in some ways it was like what we actually got was both more successful than we kind of imagined in that era. Like I think if someone had told you we're going to get like an honest to goodness uh, democratic socialist presidential candidate who is going to like seriously be competing for the presidency by the end of the decade and there's going to be like an honest to goodness like socialist leaning block in congress that's going to be raising our demands and movement organizations that we're a part of are going to be like working directly with those people and writing their policy platforms and stuff we would have been like oh my god great like yes okay it's working and it's building towards something and uh but also, wow, I, I didn't even imagine that. That That is maybe bigger than our dreams. <laughs> but then it was like, as that actually plays out, it felt that way. And then now having seen all of that come and then now to a certain extent recede, at least in the uh, momentum or the excitement factor of some of the electoral breakthroughs, it feels like, um, well, are we closer or farther away? <laughs> <laughs> like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm just restating some of what you've you've both just said, but I wonder uh, how you make sense of that. Is it that we were just like politically naive about how difficult things are and how long things take? Is it that we uh, lost some things in the course of uh, thinking we were gaining things? Or is it is it something else entirely? I, I, I struggle to make sense of this own feeling within myself. I feel like a lot of the discourse shortly after Occupy, but before Bernie Sanders ran for president in 2016, you know, there were like social movements that were happening in the early 2000s. The, there were some organizations that were carrying the flame, 
during the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, but then Occupy, people talked about it as sort of like rebooting history. Like that was a phrase that was going around a bunch um, because it was this like shattering of the neoliberal consensus. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that I am totally uh, will admit to being like, hyped up on revolutionary fervor too much and being like, yeah, the revolution's just around the corner. Holy shit. Because it was the first time that I had like experienced that sort of thing. Um, And also at the same time, I think that uh, it was like, it did politicize like a generation of people basically uh, in many ways uh, for better or worse. And like, that's my own biased perspective on how much it did that. Um, Because there were many other things shortly before, shortly after. But I see that as sort of like a break. And then, yeah, there's all of the electoral uh, breakthroughs, everything else. You know, we're about to have the largest strike of the 21st century in like two weeks um, with like hundreds of thousands, uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of writers and actors who want like who are going to be experts in social media being on the picket line with Teamster thugs in a good way uh, (laughs) that are going to like shut down the basic flow of the economy. Uh, That's fantastic. You know, I work at an upscale retail store where we had our managers coming in and freaking out being like, oh my God, there might be a UPS strike. Holy shit. Um, (laughs) And so it's like in the air and it's, it's much deeper. The, I don't know, we're cadre. The, The excitement doesn't go away. It just sometimes takes longer or deeper to to get at because we have a better sense of the actual material conditions. Yeah, it feels like we made a misstep in the last decade or so. Um, I feel like we're kind of correcting for that. Uh, but coming from someone who was a trainer at Momentum and like uh, we talk a lot about hybrid organizing at Momentum, I just feel like we just didn't do it and we didn't really get people to do it or push people to do it. Uh, and like we were just creating what felt like a better version of like mass protest or or like a specific version of mass protest that was able to more quickly um, like extract wins from the system or at least was built to better do that. Um, but yeah, and same thing for Black Lives Matter. I feel like it just there just I feel like there were some interventions around structure and strategy that if certain people had been listened to more or like. We'd read certain people <laughs> at the right time. I feel like we could have made some different decisions in the grand scheme that would have us like better at the helm of powerful organizations at this exact moment. Um, that didn't happen, um, and maybe I'm wrong. The past is such a weird because instead the, the organizations that were built were a little bit more uh, brittle or ephemeral in nature, and, and therefore we're not now at the command of them. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of the, um, I, I think getting called out by uh, Jane McAlevey is, was useful. Uh, at least I, if I heard correctly, it was around like momentum, not really teaching structure as like there are structures in which people exist within that we must organize like churches um, schools and things like that, and just kind of like an amorphous, like structure-based organizing as a concept. Structure is when you have an org chart. Was kind yeah. of how we interpret <laughs> it's like you have it, a structure, and it never quite made sense. Um, and it just feels like a lot of organizations learned from that. A lot of leaders went on to like to do work based off of that. Um, and it feels like that, like structure-based organizing, is such a fundamental, basic part of organizing. 
Um, and it's, it's so essential to even, I mean, so like the question of revolution and mass protests, um, looking at like, uh, the Sudanese professional association, uh, playing a key role in their revolution. Um, it's just like, it just throughout time, just like having these basic organizational structures, um, embedded in institutions is so, is so simple and so important. And it feels like our generation kind of just like leapfrogged it and didn't do that and now we're kind of going back to do it while a lot of the people we're helping the leadership develop are building organization like our you know um like i have friends who got like a taste of organizing in college like they saw it once and now they're building in their workplace like without the support of like the larger left um and that's dope that we've done that um but yeah, it feels like we have a lot of work to do in terms of actually building within institutions um, on so many levels, let alone getting to the point where the Republicans are at, where they're able to like reshape institutions like school boards uh, from the top down, um, while also having their people in the actual school boards themselves and winning elections. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the big thing, I mean, I agree with that critique of momentum overall in terms of uh, it being sort of like a better version of mass protest. I think that's a really good encapsulation of a lot of their critiques that I had for a, a long time around momentum. And the other thing too, where I think I agreed at the time with some of the stuff in the momentum theory. And then also a lot of the network theory that like, you know, I was learning uh, from movement net lab from other folks and then spreading through power shift network and through other institutions. Uh, and then also, you know, there were people like Adrian Marie Brown and others who were like really preaching total decentralization uh, as like a good thing, which, uh, you know, uh, and like a thing to be strived towards, which I completely disagree with. Um, I think that there is some benefit towards decentralized network structures in certain instances, but there was, I think people were deluding themselves and saying that they weren't trying to attach a value to it, but then everybody was like pushing for that kind of organizational form uh, and then after spending years in DSA and much more adjacent to the labor movement, where sometimes there's a little bit too much centralization, but actually I think that it's good. Um, and like, I'm much more of a, uh, I mean, I would call myself basically a Leninist at this point in terms of like centralized structure. Cause I do think that that's what we need and we need discipline and we do need hierarchy, uh, in my opinion, uh, based on the contradictions of the struggle that we are, the period of struggle that we are in right now. Uh, I think we actually do need a lot more discipline and hierarchy and centralization for building our, our structures and our organizations. And we can't be brittle about it. Um, but at the same time, like, uh, discipline is like the order of the day, in my opinion, uh, for like the next few years. Yeah. Ooh, one qu final quick thing about student government. I swear to God, uh, <laughs> one, we had to learn how to govern, which I, I think like both like resources and people, but also just like our own organization democratically, which I think is something the left needs to like develop and learn. And I think student government is a great place to do that. And two, we had to learn how to be accountable to people, um, including people that we didn't agree with. Um, like having an actual base of people that like funded us is just so radically different than anything I've experienced since. And just having that constant real threat of what does the membership actually think because they determine whether or not we have money is just a really different place to be. 
Something I'm reflecting on and listening to the two of you talk is like coming from the climate movement, there was always such of an urgency factor that felt like it was just looming over everything that I've let go of at this point, truthfully, in my own, like in a healthy way, mm -hmm. I think, where I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept that certain things are going to happen that we can't prevent and we have to build things on a timeline that actually works rather than the one on which we would like it to work. But... Um, that was a big factor. Like it felt like we were building, you know, up through the divestment movement and, 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 and building stronger solidarity across the sort of scope of EJ, youth, greens and, 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 and labor. But even so, it was like we can't afford to build it up brick by brick for the next 10 years. We need to figure out how to figure out how to how to get our hands on the reins of state power like now so that <laughs> immediately so that we can try to just start this process of um, reducing carbon pollution as fast as possible. And so in that context, like the, the momentum um, kind of idea that you can harness um, disruptive protest and use kind of savvy media and comms interventions in combination with a, you know, large but not overwhelmingly large activist base, like a tight and dedicated activist base rather than a mass popular base of, you know, all of the working class or, or what have you. That was all very appealing. And then Sanders was also like very, very appealing. Like maybe this is the opportunity that God has given us to be able to like somehow hit it fast forward on the transition process because otherwise we can't see any fast forward buttons. So I just have always for a long time just like owned that these are attempted shortcuts, as Jane McAlevey would say. And I think we were often aware of it at the time, but it's like, Lord, we got to figure out how to how to ride this shortcut. Otherwise, we're going to have to face a, a, a tougher future. And now, like, we're, we're kind of entering that future and, mm -hmm. and, and we have to figure out what to do now. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, I have a fear that people are going to overcorrect into base building um, and not and just do the same thing over again, where then we need to then overcorrect into mass movement work. I definitely think we need to continue to think about these big, exciting movements that really polarize the public and give us uh, new political openings, allow us to spread our models very quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. I mean, you know, I think this is a debate that the the eco-socialists in DSA have with other people very frequently. Uh, and we saw this like happen in public with some of the stuff around the electeds in New York and the Build uh, Public Renewables Act, um, which just passed, where, you know, yeah, the, the DSA electeds in New York are not like total tribunes for only DSA, like they're coalition candidates. They're not like cadre, party infrastructure, like they're not completely DSA people, but they have been able to pass very significant reforms. And I think, Will, you and I talked about this in our one-on-one -on -one interview a little bit of like that tension between cadre candidates versus coalition candidates. And when we're thinking about elections, not even necessarily as a shortcut, but as one of the legs of the stool in building long-term power and starting to build the bricks for like independent working class party infrastructure. But yeah, we are still under under the gun uh, when it comes to, to climate change. And I think I also have let, let go of that urgency in many ways, but I do uh, find myself trying to balance 
letting go of that urgency and being in community with people who have been through that process, and then also being with people who are entering that process as well, where they are like forced to let go of a vision of like, everything being better and the climate crisis being like solved or whatever, uh, within their lifetimes. Um, it's like having to remind people that we are going to have to fight as hard as possible and things are going to get worse no matter what, no matter how hard we fight. And that's a tension that we have to just come to terms with and learn how to live our lives, learn how to find beauty and joy, learn how to be able to like grieve while also at the same time, not completely giving up and not being totally nihilistic about it too. And that goes to something that we're going to be really exploring a lot on this show, which is how do we fight for a better future <laughs> while also having uh, plans for if we don't win? Because we need to live in a future where we, we don't win on some of our more ambitious demands. And I still want to be able to survive. <laughs> uh, and so that's one of those built-in tensions. And I'm wondering about how we can have strategies, specifically in thinking about the ecological crisis, that create built-in hedges where we're, we're fighting for a world that is really the world we imagine and which, you know, dignifies our existence. And then uh, we're, we're working to survive and still live well in a world that uh, doesn't do all those things. Let's move forward and just move towards wrapping up. This has been really great, and you've touched on so many of the questions I had, actually, without me even needing to ask them. Um, so I, I just appreciate both of your insight, as always. As a closing question, let me ask, what's uh, one lesson you're taking away from all of this when you reflect on this era? And then one unanswered question that you have one lesson and one unanswered question and either of you can begin when you're when you're ready yeah i'm still thinking about power always i think what i got from student organizing was a creativity around power and how i saw it where like we had control over our campus tv station for example like that's just not a path that i would come up with outside of student organizing I feel like I wouldn't be like, we should take over the local TV station and then be able to like pump out our message to people locally, like pretty consistently. And I feel like having like a smaller playing field let us think potentially more creatively, or maybe there's like less bounds by like a foundation board or any kind of accountability really um, to anyone who would be mad about stuff like that. But I just think the left is at a point where we need to, yeah, think about what kinds of power are we leaving on the table, whether it is like control over like large Facebook groups um, or um, actually having independent sources of revenue and financing that isn't tied uh, to the current capitalists. But yeah, I think just really going back to the basics of like, we want this goal of this better country. Like how do we actually get that goal by any means necessary? and not by any means that was predetermined by um, either our founders or a board of directors or whoever, but really going into the, yeah, how do we win? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that for me, the lesson that I'm thinking about at the moment, yeah, and reflecting on this era and listening to you both and, and thinking about that revolutionary fervor. Uh, you know, I remember very clearly 
I think it was in like 2014 or 2015, Philip Agnew, um, the um, founder of, of Dream Defenders, and you know, uh, he came back from a trip from Brazil and was talking about how we need to all be militants and like was going on and on and on about like, what is a militant? And I think for me, the lesson is that like, we need to be unafraid to be militants. Um, and that's a, like a lesson that uh, many of us learned during student organizing that I think students kind of jump into because of like youthful fire or passion or whatever, but then like being able to stay a militant for your entire life. Uh, and that is the path that you choose is like a lesson that bears repeating. And the unanswered question for me is how do we, uh, like I'm obsessed lately with the question of like writing and what forms uh, can we use to put these reflections down and how much, uh, I mean, you joked about us being the like elder millennials or middle-aged millennials, but I do think that like, you know, we've been doing this for a minute and we do have like things that need to be written down and passed on. And uh, what is the balance between like uh, having, you know, maybe like a healthy ego about it and being like, yeah, we've like been around the block. We've done some shit. And like we should be sharing those lessons while also always being learning from people who are doing it now, people who are doing it before us. Um, I think that there's a, a dearth uh, and there's not enough of like us all uh, sitting and reflecting and writing those things and putting them out into the world. And that's what I plan on spending the next year or two doing while I take a break from like formal organizing leadership roles is like really digging into that question because I think it's an unanswered one for me right now. <laughs> We're going to close it there. Thank you so much, Akeen. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you. Uh That was Sean Estelle and Akeen Ola in conversation about the youth movements of the Obama presidency. I'm finding it interesting to reflect on the differences between the student movements I see now and the ones that all three of us were involved in uh, around 10 years ago. Back then, it was most common to be involved in issue-based organizations, as I think you heard. There were climate activists, the immigrant dreamers, the student power activists, black racial justice organizers, and within all of these spaces, the trend of political movement was leftward over time through this era. We started as liberals, and we were radicalized by our experiences of confrontation with power, which became a basis for solidarity among our respective movements. Over time, more and more of us became involved in new formations that were multi-issue and expressly left-wing, like DSA or the Bernie movement and various socialist cadre organizations. And I think it's fair to say that today's youth and student organizers have inherited much of the radicalization that we underwent. Today, I see many of the most effective student organizers involved with explicitly left-wing formations like the YDSA. And in general, I, it seems to me that students are more developed ideologically today than we were back then. Of course, this doesn't necessarily translate into being effective campaigners, but it doesn't preclude it either. If today's student organizers can apply themselves to the task of leading popular and winning campaigns for socialist ideas, I think within a few years we could see a student movement far exceeding the level of organization and ferment that was present even a decade ago. 
And if the student movements of a decade ago helped to till the soil for the Bernie moment, I look forward to seeing what today's students can make possible in the mid to late 2020s. There's a lot more reflection that could be done from a comparative study of millennial and Gen Z youth movements, but uh, we'll have to save that for another episode. What I'm absolutely certain of from my own experience is that youth movements are essential as a training ground for skilled organizers. Youth movements deserve all of our support and investment, and that we should be continuously seeking to integrate them into our organizations and our broader movement ecosystem. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.